What is up, everyone? El Nino Speaks is back and ready to rock. Today, I'm here with the Prudentialist, one of the best geopolitical commentators that you will find on YouTube, in my estimation. How is everything going, man? Uh, Things are going great. Thanks for having me on. Fantastic. Well, tell my audience more about yourself and what you do at the moment. Sure. So as you had graciously introduced me, I primarily operate as a geopolitical and cultural commentator. I provide uh, in-depth lectures and understandings of geopolitical theory, what's going on on the news every Saturday at 3 p.m. Eastern on my YouTube channel, which you can also find elsewhere where streaming and videos are found. And I just try my best to explain what the heck is going on in the world, what are some of the theories and motivations behind how nation states and actors operate, trying to give a usually not focused area of interest, especially for Americans who are not as geographically inclined to have a better understanding of just what the hell's going on in the world. Awesome. Now, could you tell my audience what constitutes geopolitics and also describe your journey into that field? Sure. So I can start with the journey because I think that's always a little bit easier So I studied international relations and American history in university. I have two degrees in specifically political science and American history. And so it kind of just became something that had always stuck with me. While the sort of strategic forecasting folks like George Friedman are sometimes they're good, sometimes they're not. But I read his book in 2009 when I was just getting into high school called The Next 100 Years. And it had totally changed the way I wanted to look at the world, especially as an army brat growing up. I thought that You know, you can take a look at history, language, economics, and culture and apply it to where nations are situated on the globe and have a pretty good understanding of how they may interact with one another based upon all of those factors. And so that kind of gives you a good understanding of what geopolitics is. It's the aspect of politics and actors of nation states, individuals, companies, armies, militaries, in international relations where geography plays a major factor in regards to how nations will interact with one another. So, you know, the United States, of course, is in an interesting geopolitical position because traditionally it has two weaker powers to its northern and southern border, and it is protected primarily from land invasion by two large oceans that protect it from either its west or eastern coasts. And so, Understanding how geography plays a role and how nation states interact with one another is the foundation of geopolitics. Great stuff there. Yeah, geopolitics is incredibly important in these times, in my opinion, because we are entering a new type of international order. And what is actually pretty amusing to me is that if you took a time machine back to the 1990s, you'd find a multitude of foreign affairs journals talking about like the end of history and the arrival of the so-called unipolar moment where the U.S. remained unchallenged on the world stage. But fast forward to the present, and that moment of unipolarity appears to be fleeting at best in light of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the rise of China. What do you believe has led to the rise of this nascent multipolar order? 
Well, I think it was more of an inevitability than anything else. You can have periods where there is a, a relative peace. I mean, the Congress system out of Europe post-Napoleon is a good example. But even then, you still had a multitude of conflicts and geopolitical questions, such as what to do with the Ottoman Empire at that time frame. So in this midst of the Soviet Union falling, and of course, it's still being a well-known technical and industrial base and center it was still a nuclear-armed power and still is to this day, that the likelihood of the United States maintaining its global hegemony, or as the unipolar moment is the late Charles Krauthammer wrote in 1990, it was not intended to last, I don't think, or as much as it was like to be lasting forever and have a Pax Americana, it wasn't set to be the case. There are a multitude of reasons as to why I think that it substantially led to our moment now where we're having this conversation of a more deglobalized world and a more multipolar world order. Is I think you can base this down into three things. One, I think, would be foundationally America's foreign policy, adventurism into the Middle East, uh, 20 years of spending your blood and treasure research and development inside of Iraq and Afghanistan had significantly led you to leave other areas of geopolitical focus by the wayside. I think that's a big reason why we saw Obama's pivot to Asia in his second term. The second point would be would be the large spread failure of sort of being able to, quote unquote, spread liberal democracy. I mean, a lot of people like to make fun of that phrase, the end of history from Francis Fukuyama, which the big takeaway from that text isn't that all roads lead to, you know, this world peace moment now that the Soviet Union has fell. His argument is, is that liberal democracy would remain triumphant, that rather than the Marxist idea that history will lead to this proletariat revolution, instead it leads to some kind of liberal democracy. And in turn, it hasn't happened. Most states, especially post-COVID, have led towards a more authoritarian structure. And despite efforts to globalize, it's seen widespread reactions and backlash. And I think we're beginning to see that from international actors that can weaponize that against larger powers like the United States. So whether that be Russia, China, or coalitions of others. And then the third, I would say, is, is that the United States had fundamentally failed to maintain an effective manufacturing and industrial base inside of its own country. There's a giant sucking sound, as it was referenced with regards to the North American Free Trade Organization, or agreement, and not to mention we've been helping our own geopolitical rivals, such as China, for the last 30 to 40 years, to where most of the world treats China as its number one trade partner and not the United States. So I think that those are some of the three largest contributing factors as to how we're getting to where we are now. Yeah, as of this recording, we're on the cusp of reaching the one-year anniversary of the Russo-Ukrainian war, especially the so-called special military operation that kicked off on February 24th. Based on your analysis of the situation there, how do you see things playing out in the Russo-Ukrainian conflict? Well, it's always been difficult to get a real feel for it. I mean, in part because you don't know how much of the media reports or what were given out by officials is to be necessarily accurate. Both the Russians and Ukrainians have put out their own versions of the casualty counts, how much has been spent. And so it becomes difficult, I think, to get a pretty concrete answer unless you're actually there on the ground. One of the important things that we can do when looking at that conflict is the second order consequences. So for instance, we can see how Turkey's relationship to NATO has been sort of estranged by the nature of oh, Finland yeah. and Sweden trying mm -hmm. to join, or the fact that 60 to 50 percent 
of all of the semiconductor-grade neon necessary for semiconductor manufacturing comes out of two companies inside of Ukraine, which, of course, has been put on halt since the war began almost a year ago to the day. Uh, Other things, too, which would affect like the United Nations World Food Program because Russia and Ukraine are breadbaskets to the world in regards to their grain exports. And that's going to be a major issue in the future when it comes to rising food prices, as well as the prices of semiconductors and other necessary equipment for advanced technologies. And so I think as we look at the war, though, not just in that sort of second order effect scale, but also we can look at the fact that We have seen a more dominant United States, especially when it can leverage pressure on its European allies. While America has been footing the bill in that traditional buck-passing format where other allies will let America pay and foot the bill, they are also paying a substantial price when it comes to, say, energy and, of course, their own militaries being relatively depleted, Germany being a prominent example, as does Canada and the United Kingdom. And so we're in this rather precarious position to where There has been no substantial push by Western powers for a peace agreement outside of, say, President Emmanuel Macron of France. And so it seems now most recently with President Biden visiting Kiev and now visiting Poland that the stakes seem to be very high for both sides of this conflict, which, of course, the Ukrainians are backed by the West. And in doing so, we're now in a position where The likelihood of escalation is a very real concern on the table. I was reading just yesterday that apparently... There's some strategic arms limitations that the uh, Russian government had decided to pull out of. So we're seeing a withdrawal from our detente years of strategic arms and limitation controls. And so we're in a position that I think is incredibly dangerous and precarious because we have not seen for a very long time a power parity conflict like we're seeing here of the Western supplied Ukraine versus Russia and its own military capacity. So we're finally seeing for what feels like the first time in generations, an actual state versus state great power conflict, and it is bloody and tragic. Oh, indeed. Yes. And one thing that actually surprised me about this was that I originally thought that Russia was not going to invade Ukraine in the lead up to the special military operation, mostly based on the assumption that the U.S. would quickly consummate its pivot to China. And I do vaguely remember, actually, a piece by the Atlantic Council, I believe it was like in 2021 or so. It was like definitely before the Russian military incursion in Ukraine that was kind of like calling for somewhat of a detente with Russia to focus on China, but that appears to have just evaporated with how like the U.S. and its NATO satrapies are funding and arming Ukraine to the hilt. Would you say that this pivot to China is on hold for the time being, or will the U.S. try to pursue an absurd policy of dual containment against two nuclear powers? Well, I think we're beginning to see more of the latter than the former. I mean, there had been some geopolitical concerns, including from the late George F. Kennan, that, you know, one of the most famous cold warriors in American history about the idea that Russia could be used as an effective balance, taking advantage of the already existing Sino-Soviet split and have pressures on China in the future. That clearly hasn't been the case. Uh, It does seem that the United States is pursuing a policy with her allies and partners to try and contain 
both of Russia and China and has for the interim put an interesting triadic relationship between Russian Federation, the Chinese government, the CCP, and the Islamic Republic of Iran all sort of together in these regards, despite the fact that they all have varying different interests. The United States, of course, has kept on both from the Obama administration, Trump, and now Biden with regards to keeping a sort of containment focus on China. I remember about you know, around a decade ago, there was a lot of literature and a lot of books being posing that question about what do we do when China rules the world? Do we cooperate with them? Do we try and contain them? And the United States has tried this sort of game of containment. Even the Biden administration has kept up a lot of the trade war policies of the previous administration. And so uh, we're, of course, seeing a renewed focus on institutions such as the Quad, which incorporates the United States, Australia, India, and Japan. And most recently, the prime minister of Japan, Fumio Kishida, is the former, of course, foreign affairs and defense minister when Shinzo Abe's government. And he has been very adamant about increasing military spending and trying to get around their Article 9 limitations to have a much more offensive, capable military. So it does seem that we're having the, the picture being painted on both the East and the West that Russia and China are being a subject of containment. I actually want to go back to your point about Turkey because Turkey's one country that's always fascinated me because it has a long history of geopolitical hedging, if you will, where it will try to play off great powers in the East and in the West against each other. So and all while it tries to extract like certain privileges and I for its own national interests. And you see it well to this day with the during the Trump administration, the purchase of the, I think like the S-400 uh, missile systems from Russia, which angered NATO for obvious reasons. And also Turkey has made some noise too about the treatment of the Uyghurs in China because they do have a kind of like pan-Turkic element to their geopolitics. And they've, I've tried using some soft power measures in Central Asia to kind of consummate some like pan-Turkic geopolitical project, not to mention the obvious neo-Ottoman aspirations of Turkey in the Mediterranean. So where do you see Turkey's role in this multipolar order? Will it continue hedging or will its destiny be more eastward? I mean, I think that we are going to see a lot more hedging in the future. It has a lot more leverage now than I think it did 20 years ago, and this is in part due to the migrant crisis. It, There's been several points in time where President Erdogan has sort of made reference to the fact that he has millions of people inside of his country that are an effective trump card that he could unleash the floodgates to cause another issue of a migrant crisis inside of Europe, which gives him substantial political leverage when it comes to, say, negotiations over NATO, but more specifically the European Union. At the same time, you 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 were correct about the purchasing of the uh, S-400 missile systems. In fact, that led them to be sort of kicked out of any sort of uh, future joint strike fighter F-35 partnership program, um, which has always been a subject of contention, both within the Trump administration and now with this current administration. And so I, I do see Turkey being able to leverage their own positions there. I mean, they've been heavily involved in the Armenian-Azerbaijan conflict that Russia has also been heavily vested in. And of course, historically, Russia and the Ottoman Empire have always had issues. It was a big part of the Eastern question in the 19th century. And so I would see them being able to use that leverage considerably for the length of time, but also on the nature of demographics as well. I mean, is there a more substantial 
Muslim population inside of Europe. I mean, the Quran burning instance that happened a few months back is going to be something that President Erdogan has holed over when it came to Sweden or Finland trying to join the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. So I, I think that we can see a lot of political sway that will be leveraged. But they do have their own interests, of course. And I think that it would be interesting to see and research. And I may have to look more into this because I, I don't know. But I mean, you do have, for example, when we take a look at China, right? And you had mentioned sort of their issues with the Uyghurs. This is that where that province in China is, is very close to both Afghanistan and Pakistan, where a lot of terrorist organizations yeah. can be found, especially in uh, Badakhshan, right? That's where you also see organizations like the Eastern Turkestan Islamic Movement, which, you know, again, they want to have an independent Islamic state for the Uyghurs in that country. And that's been a case there. And so, Chinese crackdown on that area, while it's been very easy for us to sort of make it a moralistic call uh, to the Chinese, see that as a substantial internal but also external terrorist threat that could be potentially supported by other countries. Oh, yeah. I mean, the U.S. has a knack of funding like uh, Sunni Islamic militants, like wherever you go, whether it's like the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, the so-called moderate rebels in Syria or a lot of these like uh, Bosnian militants during the uh, Yugoslav wars of the 1990s, it has a very proven track record um, of doing that. And one thing that I actually found very interesting, too, about Turkey is that during the Trump administration, there was this very interesting triumvirate forming in the Middle East between Turkey, Iran and Qatar, where Turkey was actually getting pretty influential to the point where I think in some Arab states, they were scared of Turkey's soft power, especially through the form of these Turkish telenovelas, which are actually very popular, not just like in the Middle East, but also in Latin America. When I um, lived in Chile, I watched several of those. But they were like getting to the point where they started banning that stuff. And Turkey has really positioned itself in many ways to not only be like a player like in Central Asia and Middle East, but also a, a player in the broader Muslim world, as you mentioned. Yeah, no, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. This is that Turkey has quite a bit of history. And of course, it has its own internal politics, which has a tendency to spill over in part, mainly due to the fact that it's been dealing with sort of the Kurdish Workers Party uh, since the 1970s. So you've got a little You've got about 50 years now of dealing with sort of this inter-ethnic conflict, which, of course, inside of Turkey, it makes it problematic because about one fifth of the working age population inside of Turkey is is Kurdish. And that's, of course, played a major issue in Turkey's role in the conflict and the civil war inside of Syria and the foreign actors that play a role there, while also using its position geopolitically to leverage against other countries that wanted to arm the Kurds during the ongoing fight against the Islamic State whether that be from Germany, the United States, or the United Kingdom. So it has quite a bit to leverage, both for demographic reasons, but also cultural. Oh, big time, yeah. Turkey is one of the countries, in my opinion, next to China, that is very effective in weaponizing its migrant populations to build fifth columns in Western countries, especially like the long arm of Ankara is very noticeable in Europe. And that's one of like the more underrated features of its geopolitical influence. Now, I want to shift gears to a neighboring country in Iran because um, it has fallen a bit out of prominence over the last few years, though. It has occupied the news lately because of its alleged delivery of drones to Russia, which some 
experts believe is beginning to make a difference on the battlefield in Ukraine. It's obviously not a nuclear power such as Russia or China, but it does still maintain historical clout and influence in the present even. And as a result of that, it gives the neoconservative and the Zionist cabal in D.C. fits. Do you see the U.S. or Israel taking direct military action against it anytime soon? I mean, that seems to be the question that we've been asking ourselves, at least, well, not you and I personally, but I mean, it seems to be the question that's been asked for like the last 30 years. Um, There's always been greater concerns about uh, Iran having the potential for nuclear enrichment facilities to create its own nuclear weapons program. Whether or not it already does exist, I don't know. Lord knows that the Israelis have their own. But to me, it seems that we saw some direct action not too long ago because there was attacks on munition centers and facilities from Israel, or at least they were claimed to be. Others had said that they came from Azerbaijani groups as well. But it does illustrate that Iran is going to be a major player for a considerable length of time due to the fact it has its own domestic industrial base. It has taken existing Cold War technology and has modified it for its own needs. Countries like France have a rather lucrative relationship with them when it comes to, say, their airline and manufacturing industry inside of Iran, on top of the fact that it can still hold significant sway on its own stage abroad. I mean, the Iranian foreign minister decided not to attend a sort of talk inside of India because some recent video footage that the Indians had played had featured the ongoing uh, women's protests that are happening inside of that country. I don't know if the United States and Israel are going to make any substantial move in the meantime. I think that the Middle East is a lot more complicated than it was 25 years ago, especially now that America's withdrawal from Iraq and Afghanistan has left sort of a power vacuum. Iraq, for example, has a lot more Iranian influence now than it ever has been since the Americans had been a part of that country and its military operations. So I think that we aren't going to see any direct action now. To do so, especially in the midst of the Russian-Ukraine conflict, would be tantamount to a, something equivalent, I guess, of bombing Nord Stream 2. But even more importantly, it'd be attack on another country that would certainly view it as an act of direct war and hostility. So I don't think we'll see it anytime soon, at least as long as the Russian-Ukraine conflict is going. This is a bit random, but it is related to Iran and its relations with China. Did you see that diplomatic kerfuffle that Iran and China had with regards to China's statement that it issued together with like a lot of Arab Gulf states in the Gulf Cooperation Council, where, if I'm not mistaken, the China and these states uh, criticized Iran for funding terrorist groups and proxy organizations across the Middle East and causing destabilization. They also, in that same statement, they called out Iran for its um, territorial dispute with the UAE over like three islands. Do you ever get a hold of that? No, I, I haven't seen that, no. But I do know that... Um the Iranian president has recently accepted an invitation for a state visit to China. So it, it does seem that there's more of this looking east policy out of the Rossi government, the president of Iran. But no, yes. I wasn't too familiar with that. But it seems that the relationships between the two have deepened. I know that China has Iran are well acquainted with regards to their Belt and Road Initiative. And I think now with the 
Afghan Taliban government being more than happy to accept Chinese investment, we're going to see a stronger relationship between the two, minus the any kind of diplomatic kerfuffles that we may see. Yeah, it actually it was kind of funny because that statement almost read like word for word from like a neocon like pro Zionist like think tank. But it might have been just also because China does have like a neutral foreign policy in the Middle East. It engages with everyone. And in fact, in like the Yemeni conflict, they kind of take a position from what I've seen, the Chinese, that strangely aligns with the Saudis and the U.S. in terms of protecting like Yemen's like territorial integrity and somewhat cracking down on the Houthis. But they obviously have not really casted their lot directly with one side. It does appear, though, that that statement was rectified because this came about in December. And from what I've like investigated, they cleared up the whole UAE territorial dispute. And I think they may have just put it past there. But I do see China in the Middle East probably in the the long term. As the U.S.'s influence wanes there, it, it'll probably play more of a role of like a mediator of sorts and to a lesser extent, Russia as well. Yeah, I'm inclined to think that they will be seeing a much larger diplomatic presence inside the Middle East. I mean, even when the Americans were still inside of Afghanistan, that there was a substantial bit of leverage that China had in regards to being at the negotiating table with the Taliban under various uh, American administrations. So, I mean, I would imagine that to expand. I mean, yeah, last December, they Xi Jinping did meet with the leadership council of Yemen. And during that time, they had said that the importance for territorial integrity and sovereignty needs to be protected and that it needs to be solved diplomatically. So, I mean, China is definitely seeing an opportunity in the Middle East, both from the Afghan aspects, the Pakistan economic corridor that they have, but also in regards to being a much larger diplomatic player in there, because when you've got plenty of capital to invest in, then why not wave that around as an opportunity to play as the negotiator? Oh, no doubt. No doubt. So let's shift gears a bit because you're mostly focused on geopolitics, but I have heard your commentary on domestic affairs here and there. How would you describe your overall political outlook? (laughs) I guess a pretty um, fun and loaded question. I mean, I'm not one for labels. I would definitely consider myself, I guess, what you would say on on the American right, not uh, sort of the Republicans sort of day. I'm not a big fan of the Republican Party as much as I am the Democrat Party. I think I hate the Republicans more when it comes to our electoral issues. But I guess the closest thing that you would just find me saying is is that I like to think of myself as a sensible person on the right that doesn't mind dealing with the issues that are somewhat third rail and our current political issues. I mean, you, you'd mentioned think tanks and of, of Zionist influence. I mean, what a better book to read than John J. Mearsheimer and Stephen Waltz, uh, The Israel Lobby from 2008. Oh, yeah. But I, I, I just consider myself just a, a friend to the right. And I guess if there was a label to, to stick on me, just a, a reactionary gadfly. Yeah, you'd say like a paleocon more or less, right? I pretty much I'm friends with most of those kind of people. That's the kind of books that I like to read. Yeah, I've been like that way more or less since I got into politics. I got into it uh, mostly through like Ron Paul and other figures like Alex Jones. But I've become more paleoconservative and nationalist over time. That's what I would say have been like some of like the nuanced changes in my outlook since then. I used to be uh, much more libertarian at that juncture, but now I'd say I'm more nationalist slash identitarian on certain things. 
Yeah, of all like the hot button domestic issues out there, which of um, them do you believe are like the most important? Well, I would definitely say that, I mean, the economy is definitely going to be one of them. I think that economics is definitely up there in regards to not only just for national security purposes, but also for the well-being of ordinary individuals. I think that we're heading very dangerously close towards a recession that's going to affect how governments are going to respond and deal with their people. Secondly, I, I do think that racial issues and policing issues have to be up there for regards to our our government because we do live in what uh, Sam Francis would describe as anarcho-tyranny. There are rules for thee and not for everybody else, and we see that most clearly when it comes to policing issues. I do think that we have sort of an under-incarceration problem, not an over-incarceration problem. And Agreed. Uh, between those two issues, I would also find that we have watched over the last 75 years a complete deracination and debasement of what is traditionally considered American culture to where we're this sort of homogenization of all things where everyone's watching the same sort of Marvel film or watching the same kind of television shows. There are options, but they all have the same sort of progressive messaging. And so culture, policing, race, and economics, I think, are some of the most important issues that the country has to deal with. Oh, yes, absolutely. It is um, actually kind of ironic because you mentioned homogenization because these people preach multiculturalism purportedly. But the funny part about this entire political project, it has just turned the U.S. into this really lifeless, like homogenized global consumer imperium that tries to export its like degeneracy abroad. That is one of like the more ironic facets of this entire project. Now, you're um, based in Texas, which I'm also as well. I've been involved in some capacity and have written about Texas politics for better part of a decade or so. And I've seen a lot of weird stuff go down based on what you've observed, like your time, like doing content creation and commentary. What's your view of the way politics in Texas is going well, I really wish that Governor Greg Abbott would learn a lesson or two from Governor Ron DeSantis from Florida and maybe be more proactive in his sort of political leanings and taking action on institutions and culture and education. I mean, traditionally, I mean, people who live outside the state may think that it's just one giant right-wing cowboy cesspool, but it's not. No, I mean, you go to anywhere no. like Dallas or Austin, I mean, there are these microcosms of the same sort of lefty BS that you would find in Portland or San Francisco. And what's worse is that a lot of them, Texas's cities weren't like that. I mean, it feels really bad when I have to, like, drive down to, like, the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, and, it, and you see all these homeless encampments, and you see the police just trying to, like, get them out of sight, but they're still there, and you can see the traces of where they've lived and where they're at, and it's just the same kind of politics and the same kind of, I guess, atmosphere that we always lambast places like California or Seattle or New York City for. But at the same time, there's this weird sort of political machination going on inside of Texas. I mean, the 2020 election did provide some interesting insights, I guess, as to where the Republican Party is going writ large nationally. We saw a major swing in the 2020 presidential election to the right, or at least for Donald Trump in the 2020 election, especially in the Rio Grande Valley, a primarily Hispanic Mexican kind of uh, population. And at the same time, we did see places like Tarrant County or Denton County move much more to the left than we had ever seen before. And oh, so yeah. you're seeing this sort of political realignment take place along sort of a weird 
ethnic economic boundary, which is very interesting to see take place. And it, the question is, is how can you reflect that not on a national level, but on a local level? And right now, it seems like the Texas Republican Party is still acting like it's 2002 and they've just, you know, the Democrats have finally been kicked out forever and we can rule this place forever. And that's not the case. And so I think that Texas politics locally, or at least on the state level, are getting to a dangerous degree where there is a lot more progressive influence on the state than people realize. And I think that it's not going away anytime soon. One of the downsides of Governor Greg Abbott, you know, championing this like Republican business first venture is that it, the more opportunities you create in the state, the more opportunities it is for leftists to move from California to Texas and then vote your ass out of office. And I think that that's one of the consequences we're going to see for a substantial period of time. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there because, yeah, I grew up in the DFW area. And if you were to tell me that Tarrant County is now like a swing county, like, 10 or 15 years ago, I would have called you crazy because that was always considered arguably like the largest freaking county in the U.S. that Republicans could pick up. And it used to be pretty blood red. Even Dallas itself, like in the 80s, went like easily uh, for Reagan. But it's demographically transformed. Like um, it looks like the freaking Moss Eisley Cantina, to be honest, when you look at it, when you look at it these days, like let's um, dispense with the political correctness here because like. Yeah, it's gotten pretty bad. I can tell like a lot of anecdotes, like my dad be, well, working in the Dallas Police Department as a translator, just like documents like the absolute like horror shows that go there in terms of uh, unreported crimes, um, illegal alien crimes and all that, which is really province of your typical Gotham style blue city. But it's coming here. And I also live in Austin, which is itself, uh, it's always been quite progressive, but this kind of standard is happening all across like um, U.S. cities and Texas cities are no no except, uh, exception to this. I actually like your point about the corporations because I do think that whenever states really, red states really push this whole pro-business angle, they are shooting themselves in the foot because they are creating, like they're letting these really hostile institutions that promote mass migration and corporations and also woke degeneracy come in and create like a power base, a subversive power base, if you will, in the state. And obviously, they're going to be magnets for young urban professionals who tend to be breaking hard for the Democratic Party. It's just like a lose-lose situation. You are effectively empowering your enemies. And you're also creating cost of living crisis because anytime you see like a big tech company or an assortment of big tech companies set up shop in a city, you can absolutely bet that there will be a housing crisis, like homeless crisis, like ensuing there within like a year or two because of the cost of living and all of that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's been a substantial increase in housing prices all over the Dallas-Fort Worth metroplex, and they've just been spreading in all directions as they can where there's cheaper housing. And for people that have lived there for generations, you know, they're getting priced out of the places that they used to call home. And that just tends to be a case where I think that for any sort of political formula going forward on the right, now whether it's a paleoconservative one, whatever it may be, it, it cannot worship, you know, the the GDP, the 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 memeable line go up type deal. It's important yeah. to have a healthy economy, absolutely, but you cannot disrupt or more or less destroy for the sake of profits families or the integrity of a community or culture. Oh, yeah, absolutely agreed. And 
this economic reductionism that the GOP engages in is loony and it needs to be totally done away with. Now, yeah, let's talk about race because you mentioned that because it's pretty undeniable when you read about the civil rights revolution and analyze what has ensued since then that it's a racial politics has become a pillar of U.S. politics altogether, and the Black Lives Matter mania that followed the death of St. George Floyd just showcased this in lurid fashion. It has subsided somewhat, but on any given day, you could see another wave of insanity kick off, and most importantly, the institutionalization of this madness tends to happen behind the scenes in a myriad ad of um, bureaucracies and agencies that get taken over by this. Do you see racial strife intensifying in the decades to come? I certainly do in the same way that it's been an issue in the country long before the civil rights act. I mean, uh, one has to consider for instance, during the American civil war, just a century prior was that you also had hundreds of thousands of Irishmen come to the country and had to deal with the fact that they were here sort of, at the behest of the union to fight for the union because you had a substantial amount of people who didn't want to actually fight for the federal government to fight the South of the native-born population. And to a point, it actually caused some political upheaval in the Republican Party because you had George McClellan run for president against uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln in his second term, or at least for the Republican Party in its position. That's why there's a, a different ticket that Lincoln runs on. But I mean, it's always been a historical problem with how you integrate certain cultures, races, and ethnicities into the country. We stopped clearly going for this assimilatory, there is a cultural standard that had been set by sort of the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant culture that had more or less built the country. And now it is that every difference must be celebrated, every aspect must be. And to some extent, yes, some cultures should be preserved, they should be maintained. And, and, and But if you're going to become part of the United States, you, there are there is a little bit that has to die with the old man. And you have to kind of like get along with these standards. But those standards, of course, nowadays are called white supremacy, or that it's bigotry, or it's anti-black. And so we see it quite often nowadays where there's going to be sort of a new racial triage system in the name of anti-racism. I mean, in Dallas County in 2021 during the COVID pandemic, when they had those monoclonal antibody treatments, so it was rather well known that if you were a white individual and you didn't have a pre-existing medical condition, you had you were not, you know, first come first serve. They were going to prioritize the economically and racially disadvantaged. And that had been the policy of this administration when it came to COVID relief, when it is probably going to come in other avenues of policy. Lord only knows what's inside that giant package of the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, which is really just a climate bill. So I, I do think that we're going to see increased low-intensity conflict on along racial, cultural, and political lines uh, for some substantial time to come. Pretty scary stuff. I was a bit optimistic when Donald Trump was elected in 2016 because you at least saw some issues such as immigration and a restrained foreign policy come to the fore. But his presidency was a mixed bag. And in the present, it does appear that the GOP is doing everything possible to revert back to the neoconservative status quo of yesteryear, a.k.a. open borders, kowtowing to big business, 
prosecuting never-ending wars, and last but certainly not least, engaging in low-IQ pro-Zionism. Do you see the Republican Party as a viable vehicle for political reforms, or will dissidents have to build parallel institutions? Well, I mean, you're going to need to build parallel institutions regardless if you think that the Republican Party can be captured or reformed. Clearly, I think it'll be demonstrated as we see uh, more continuous local disasters, whether that be with the water crisis that took place last year in Jackson, Mississippi, or the issues of power outages here in Texas when it came to winter freezes, that you are going to need to rely on a network of individuals, businesses, friends, associations, and organizations that can help you get through when times get rough. I mean – You know, there's that new founding uh, org that wants to focus on trying to escape the sort of, you know, diversity, equity and inclusion nonsense of the workforce and have you hired by people that don't buy into that crap, which I think is a very good start. And that we also need to be taking a look at how we can focus ourselves politically in areas that are actually tangible for the time being with how ballot harvesting and some of the blatant political corruption that exists I don't know how well you can capture an institution that is designed to be beautiful losers, as uh, Sam Francis would call it. But I do think you have opportunities on the local level above all else there. I think that the the principle of subsidiarity, where you have more power based upon your geographic proximity than you do, say, far away in Washington, D.C., means that you really have to be involved at a local level, whether that's city council, whether that's meeting with your neighbors, being friendly with police officers or those that you know have similar political leanings to you or just know that things aren't right, that has to happen regardless. But as for the GOP, I mean, they seem to be orienting themselves to be this quote-unquote multi-ethnic working class party as if they learned no lessons from Donald Trump's uh, election in 2016 whatsoever. Um, We see this a lot with focuses on individuals like George Santos or Maya Flores to where it seems to be out with their traditional voting bloc, which still is 98% of their voting bloc. The which is, you know, white people and uh, in with something that doesn't seem to have a a tangible political formula. The Republican Party seems to operate via negativa to everything. Oh, we're not the Democrats. And that's the only thing that they can sell themselves on. And I think people want more than that for obvious reasons. People want meaning. People want to stand for something that they can actually pass on to their posterity, not something that just manages decline. Agreed on all fronts. I am a major proponent of local politics, and my side work is very much focused on that. I come from a lobbying background, and I believe that that same model can be used by people at the local level because not everybody is going to become relevant at federal level. And to be honest, at this point, I'm not very convinced there's much change to be made at the federal level, but there are plenty of opportunities at the local and state level where people can gain the necessary experience to become effective political operators. I think this is a good place to close things out, Prudentialist. Great conversation, though. Where can listeners keep up with your latest work? Sure. So you can find me on Twitter at Mr. Prudentialist. I'm also on Telegram under the same name, YouTube, Odyssey, Rumble, Substack. All of my links as a sort of right-wing friendly version to Linktree 
Uh, that way, you know, people who have been on Linktree, they've gotten canceled for their services and their beliefs. We have a website called findmyfriends, F-R-E-N-S dot net slash the Prudentialist. You can find all of my links there and you can keep up with whatever I'm doing, which is primarily on uh, lectures and long form political and geopolitical essays, both here in America and abroad. Great stuff, man. Please give him a follow. The Prudentialist is one of the best YouTube channels that you probably have not heard of when it comes to geopolitical affairs and domestic commentary. And again, to my fellow listeners, thank you for your generous attention. And with that, El Nino has spoken.